I'd like to thank our top sponsors, Alistair Bling, Anushpagi Christensen, and Eric Lasky for making this show possible. And welcome to the 28th episode of the Cave of Apelles. Classical architecture appeals to us because it emulates the forms and proportions of nature. Human beings need timeless surroundings that reflect us, regardless of whether they are traditional or not. Modern architecture is not daring, it is quite simply not resonating. Joining me tonight is a young classical architect to elaborate on this and to share success stories from all over the world. Kristianoff Andersen, welcome to the Cave of Apelles. Thank you very much. So, we normally do a bio in the beginning. You wanted to start with who you are, how you started your education and your experiences, not, not least as someone who wants to learn classical, classical architecture. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I am born in 1986 in Drammen, Norway, and I grew up, as everyone does, they're very near to the forest. It's a long city with a river in the middle and forested hills on each side. And uh, I learned to grow, na- uh, grew to, to love nature from a, from a very young age. And, um, and my first foray into, uh, let's say, public engagement was through uh, environmental activism. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, uh, conservative values have always been about conserving um, uh, uh, let's say, aspects of nature and of culture that are uh, valuable, um, like old buildings, for example, mm-hmm. or a particular forest that I loved from a very young age. Yeah, how, um, did, how did you get into liking classical architecture? Like, Well, for me, it was very obvious. I loved old buildings. And I read this book at one point that talked about how, um, how cities could be good places to live and how dwellings... Uh, houses can make up very good cities, which is very new to me because I grew up in, a, like most people, people do in Norway, in, in a single-family house. And that it, it sparked something in me. I was 15 years old, and I found it in the school library. And uh, and since then, I thought this is something that I can do. This is somewhere I can contri- contribute. And from the very beginning, I understood that it was possible to build on. Uh, old buildings on classical architecture and the values of, of uh, let's say, the humanistic values of, mm-hmm. of classical architecture. That's um, interesting. And and then I also understood that a lot of people don't think that's possible. And so I was very conscious from the beginning that it was somewhat controversial. But then again, I never minded that. <laughs> so right. that's so uh, I don't know fascinating or what I sh- what word I should use. Because I think there's a lot of, of experiences that you've had wanting to learn classical architecture that are more or less completely identical to a, a person who wants to learn classical figurative painting or to compose in a tonal manner. Mm. So, yeah, how was that experience with then when you decided to, to start studying classical architecture or wanted to study <laughs> classical yeah. architecture? Well, I applied at a number of different schools. I got into a number of schools. Uh, there's a single school in the whole world that really focuses on these things, and that is uh, Notre Dame University in Indiana in the United States, uh-huh. where I didn't get in. So I 
plus I, I got into a very good school, a Bergen School of Architecture, where they're fo very much focused on the vernacular architecture, the traditional architecture with ar architects uh, in, in Western Norway. And we learned about the Western Norwegian landscape. Um, but I, again, I understood from very early on that you were supposed to take this traditional architecture and somehow abstract it and turn it into something a bit different, something a bit more modern, I guess. But what was the argument they would present or why should you do that? I'm, I'm not... Was there a clear argument for it or just said that you should do it? No, well, I think, I think the argument is like the overreaching argument that you keep hearing again and again, which is that it's not of our time if you do it too traditionally. That's that's the only argument that there is. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and of course, I don't find it to be a particularly good one. <laughs> and I did try to also pursue classical architecture, like high classical. Um, but I found that it was it was complicated to find find ways to do it within the education. And then fast forwarding a bit, I did my masters in Copenhagen, and. Uh, I had done the summer before doing my diploma, my master's um, degree, which we, in architecture, of course, we draw our master's degrees. We don't, we don't usually write them. And so I had, I'd been to a, a summer school, classical architecture in Sweden, the Engelsberg summer school. And uh, I knew I wanted to do something classical for my diploma, but I needed to find a way to do it because I've heard I'd heard stories about people who'd fail semesters and I'd also tried doing classical stuff earlier and gotten very um, harsh um, harsh feedback on that uh -huh. from from different places a lot of a lot of censors seem to be a bit confused by the whole thing like they were like why are you doing this I don't get it like other people have done this before you that, that, so, <laughs> so just pause a little bit right there yeah was it uh, it's a bit sort of an ideological aggression, but also just not a complete lack of understanding why anyone would want to do something that is not in our time, so-called in our time. I think it's a mixture. I yeah. think uh, some people believe it's somehow morally wrong. Uh, Ex yeah, 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 yeah. Or that it or that it represents, let's say, right-wing political values, mm. which is kind of absurd for me because I grew up in, uh, in environmentalism and as a queer activist and, and engaged in social democratic politics. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so I always found it very strange to be accused of that <laughs> um, with my like, more or less like eco-socialist views. Uh, uh, yeah. but, <laughs> <laughs> but that's so funny. Yeah, it is quite uh, funny, and and um, that's I think one of the reasons why it never got to me. You know, I never took it personally because I didn't feel like th uh, that sort of feedback really hit. So the implications that they were that they were in their sort of arg quote unquote arguments never uh, hit you basically. No, um, and uh, I think when you're talking about ideology. Mm, for most people, it's not ideology. It's more a sense of th this is not something we do anymore. And it's more or less yeah. something you've just been taught by habit in school. Mm. Yeah, by and, osmosis. Yes, mm -hmm. and, and th but there are, there are arguments. I remember a conversation we had uh, in, in the school in Copenhagen where our teachers said, we can't build the way we used to because we don't live in a world the way people used to before. We're, we're just living in some chaotic thing. We don't know what is anymore. The universe is not the, uh, the, uh, a place that makes sense anymore the way it used to. So we don't oh. live in a world and we can't make architecture 
the way people used to anymore. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other arguments, of course. There's the argument we don't have artisans who know this, so how to do this, which is wrong, of course. I follow so many wonderful artisans on, on Instagram, mm-hmm. like, uh, everything from masons to decorative painters to traditional carpentry. So many talented people that still know how to do all these things. Um, there's the argument of, of um, sort of like a fate argument that because yeah. pr- technology, has pro- technology has progressed, so the architecture also has to progress uh, and shouldn't look like something that's been done before, which is very strange because architecture is always built on the things that came before. And something that is built is um, per definition of its time, isn't it? You can't <laughs> build something that's not of its time. That's completely absurd. <laughs> If you build it, and especially if a lot of people do it, then it's definitely um, a part of what's happening in contemporary times, at least. Mm. So, so there were these arguments, but they didn't, they didn't stick. Mm. <laughs> so I knew I wanted to do something, and I, I'd, I'd heard stories about people who'd failed courses. Now I don't uh, because of having done uh, classical uh, architecture, because yeah. it was seen as a sort of like sign you haven't understood what's going on. If you're doing classical architecture, you haven't. You, you, you've misunderstood something. It's it's a sign that that you're not with it. Mm, mm. So anyway, I had to find an opening, and I considered several different approaches. I considered um, doing like a fictional project, let's say set in an alternative timeline or something like that, mm. or in the future. I considered doing something purely te- theoretical. Um, but then I found um, the ultimate, the ultimate way of approaching this, because there is a tradition in in architecture schools that the diploma project should be something uh, personal. It should it, very often you take yourself as as a starting point, and for most people that often means you make a project for your hometown. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did have ideas for doing things for for the Raman, but. Then we all went to Tbilisi, my whole program, uh, 30 of us plus teachers and everything, Tbilisi, Georgia. And uh, so I I left that and then I got the idea of doing queer architecture, which had never been done in the Danish Academy as far as I know before. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of a trend these days. And again, as a former queer activist, I think that's wonderful. I, I really don't mind. But I also knew that this is strategically... You had to use the... And what what year was this? What? Which year was this? Uh, so that was the end of fifth year, or, or most of fifth year mm. you know, of architecture school. Mm. Oh, oh no, you mean like Anna Domini? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. this was 2017, mm-hmm. 2016 to 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, because I'm a gay man, I can sort of do that with a degree of authenticity. Authenticity. So you get word. that shield that you can exactly, hide behind. Exactly. I have more of a right to do it than uh, anyone else. And this is the whole critical theory. Uh, I mean, queer theory is part of this whole critical theory uh, idea. Yeah, you could, mm. you could say so. And it's a lot about identity. It's a lot about mm. like personal relations. It's a lot about power and Foucault. And so how could you use queerness to defend your diploma? Ah, that's In what specific way would you do that? Okay, so Did you do that? Th- this is a longer argument, but I, I'll, I'll try to make it short. <laughs> okay, so queerness, it manifests in a lot of different ways. In manners of uh, speaking, in manners of dressing, you have, if I say lesbian, you get an image of your head and that attains to some, uh, a couple of different uh, traits, often visual, and you can find them in, in all sorts of expressions of culture. Mm. The queerness is is present, and and there's a there's an idea of what it looks like. So, so my assumption was that if this 
if queerness exists in all these other, in music, in clothing, in, in interiors, then uh, we can identify it in architecture as well, and perhaps we can even use it. So I took an, uh, like a, a half ruin in Tbilisi, and I designed an uh, imaginative reconstruction for mm -hmm. it, an imaginative restoration perhaps, um, using these elements of queerness. And um, queerness in architecture, uh, there's been a couple of uh, books written about it, one by Anne Bratsky and one by uh, Katarina Bonnevier. Bonnevier uses an argument that's, uh, that sort of lays the foundation for this whole idea, which says that uh, queer people are used to having to pass. Either uh, often you have to pass as straight, or else you might be in danger if you're in a lonely street at night and someone spots you as being gay or uh, you know, trans or whatever. So, so passing is very important. Or just like walking through a schoolyard when you're 15 years old and you don't want people to shout homo after you all the time. Um, and so perhaps you adapt. Perhaps you lower your voice. Mm. You sound more manly. You make sure your, uh, uh, your wrists aren't too slippery, <laughs> right? <laughs> you never wear pink. Mm. Or you do all these things and you don't care about it. But whether you do it or not, there is an, an element of enactment you you are very conscious you you, you are instilled with self-consciousness whether you choose to abide by these rules or you choose to break with them you're very conscious of it um, and that whole idea can be used also when it comes to architecture we can express ourselves and we can create environments for ourselves that uh, feel safe that feel meaningful to us and that also uh, functions function as expressions of ourself. And one way to do that is to use references, it, perhaps even fiction, um, perhaps literature, perhaps the ideas of, of creating our own little worlds where we're more safe. And very often you will uh, lend, you will borrow from history to, do, to make that happen. Uh, like, like I'm dressed right now. Mm. This, it's not that this isn't me. I feel like me in these clothes. But they also reference very obvious uh, sources and inspirations, yeah. right? There's something academic about tweed. I don't know why, but there is. Uh, <laughs> and, and that doubleness is a tool that can be used. And it also is an argument, especially in these times where identity is so important. It's an argument that can be used in an exam situation where you can't properly lose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> even if you're doing a Doric column, which would normally have you fail your diploma project. Uh, and that's exactly what you did. I mean, you didn't <laughs> fail, but you used the Doric column in your Should diploma. Should I show it yes, now? I have please. it here. Yeah, okay. So, um, so this, is, um, this is one of the ways I interpreted the idea of queerness in architecture. Yeah. Um, you have the Doric column, right? And most mm. people who know a little bit of art history will know that it's considered to be a very male form of column. Right, okay. Um, very solid and... Very uh, solid, very uh, simple, very... I mean, it's a shaft, it looks... Uh, okay. I, I very straight, very shaft-like. <laughs> yeah, let's not go there, but you know what I'm <laughs> talking about. And then and then this this building, of course, also used to be an officer's hotel. Uh, so it was a very masculine place in a way. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm taking that idea and I'm exaggerating it almost the way a drag queen will like exaggerate female nice. traits with like. So it's in some of you all you're sort of playing a bit on a camp idea also. Yeah, yeah, but the difference between this and like pure camp is that I actually followed all the rules. So right, so it's, <laughs> it's 
actually correct classicism, right? Mm. I, the, it's with the correct proportions and everything. And then, of course, the difference um, between this and like a normal classical facade is that this is just a freestanding thing on the outside of the other facade, which uh, explains why it looks a bit peculiar, but ha- half covers windows. And it's yeah, because a- there's not pilaster- pilasters there, they are in front of No, they're, they're literal, like, yeah. like a one and a half meter diameter, diameter white stone columns. Mm. And that's, that's another reason why it doesn't have any color, because it's supposed to look like very like like a bleak masculinity (laughs) because the color is fun and and inclusive whereas this is and and of course color has been associated with the feminine right so this is this is this is a sort of a parody of of super serious anti-feminine anti-ornament almost architecture but then it has a doubleness right because it's also it's also um having a bit of fun because mm-hmm. it's exaggerating, because it's including this, I, uh, yeah, the pomegranate, right, on mm. top. Mm. And, the, and it does several things at once. So it's both beautiful, it's both a real classical piece of architecture, but it also goes into that queer sensibility and, and speaks about things being non-essentialist, that you're allowed to clad buildings, you're allowed to clad people even. Yeah. <laughs> No, but, but this is uh, also a nice uh, way to, to uh, um, go into this idea of how classical culture, um, architecture, why it appeals to us. Yeah. This idea of what exactly is it in this that relates to nature somehow. Yeah. Um, so I can show a bit here. Um, I think, I think um, uh, one, of the, one of the key words there would be proportions right yeah. a lot of people will associate the classical column with the human body and uh, this again of course being a, a, a Greek Doric it doesn't have a base but normally a, a column has a base which is more or less equivalent to the feet yeah, and then okay. the capital is equivalent to the head um, but you could also compare it to that's amazing that you have a human being carrying that whole weight that's yeah a- and, and I mean, grand. if you go to the Erecteon on Acropolis, you have literal like statues of women carrying things, right? And also like li- late 19th, early 20th century architecture, you have a lot of like women and men carrying things, mm. um, uh, carrying uh, bay windows or, uh, or uh, some sort of uh, plinth or all those mm. sort of motifs. So that's a very literal way, right, of yeah, being yeah. anthropomorphic. Yeah. But it, anthropomorphism and, and biophilia can be expressed in more, um, more abstract ways, which of course this does, because this doesn't look like someone's head, but it still does a job of finishing the building towards the sky mm-hmm. uh, in a way that's stimulating, in a way that's, I think, to our bodies um, is, is something you recognize. It's something that's reassuring. Um, and it has details, right? These little figurative uh, pieces of ornament, which you can actually recognize as flowers. So you combine that, that uh, strength and that seriousness, I guess, in, in, in all these straight lines with these little details. And you get complexity, you get organized complexity, right? Uh, from from the, that combination, that's the power of, of classical architecture to me. Mm. And that you, of course, can find in all these different traditions from all over the world. And 
I think biophilia is an interesting word to, to introduce here. Mm-hmm. Biophilia uh, does not connect to queerness, even though it sounds like <laughs> it. <laughs> but it describes the tendency that, that people have towards uh, thriving in the presence of nature. Um, yeah. There's a classical study where you have a hospital corridor with rooms on each side. The rooms on one side are uh, turned towards a forest, trees and, and some meadows and stuff. And the rooms on the other side are turned towards a blank wall. And the patients are, they're the same group of patients, they're giving the same treatment. But the patients who can view nature from their hospital beds, they get better soon. Oh, yeah. there's, there's less evil microbes in their blood, there's, uh, there's rehabilitation that can't really be ascribed to anything but uh, their uh, uh, view of nature and their love of nature. Um, so I think these things are implanted in us. Some people will talk about the soul. I think we can talk about our bodies and how our bodies uh, are in a way very primitive. Um, we of course have modern intellectual brains, but our bodies are hairless monkeys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Or, like, yeah, let's mm. go there. Like, mm. it, with Joseph Campbell, right, who speaks about uh, things that communicate across time and across place. Exactly. And um, in short, I believe architecture can do the same thing as nature. Um, and there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of research that supports it. So in uh, what specific ways, if you start with the actual mm-hmm. building, some examples, yeah, yeah, let's, uh, let's point a bit. how does it actually relate <laughs> to nature? Yeah, so um, so one of the things that uh, is very um, uh, very uh, let's say um, uh, it, it it gives you a lot of trust. It gives you good feelings. Uh, is having your back protected and a view across uh, across a room or a plane or something, which of course goes back to to prehistoric times when mm-hmm. people would live in caves or or at least like reside outdoors and you could see enemies coming from a distance and if you had a cliff behind you you knew they weren't coming from there mm-hmm. um, <laughs> so these things are ingrained with us I think um, and then things and nature in itself trees I like to compare classical architecture to trees you have uh, a fundament, almost like the roots of a tree trunk that bulge out. You can see how they're connected to the earth, how they're, um, how they're uh, something solid, right? Mm-hmm. You have the, uh, either the walls or the pilasters, the columns, straight like the tree trunk. Uh, you can see how they are carrying something and they're carrying it convincingly. You can believe, you can believe they're carrying something. And then in the end, the finish towards the sky is not just a straight line, which is very abstract, but it's often softened. It could be a pediment, it could be a cupola of some kind, a dome. The sort of continuous, some upwards strive? Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and it makes, in a more, yeah, in, in a more metaphysical way, it, it points towards the, the, the heavens, the sky, and you mm. can feel like you're something more than just a hairless monkey. But, but it's also, uh, on, a, on a very primal level, very assuring. Uh, the, the complex um, horizon that a, a building c- uh, creates when it has pediments, when it has these details, mm. I, I, I think it reminds us of trees, of nature, of mm-hmm. things that we recognize. Then you, of course, have also have the face metaphor. 
that buildings that look more like faces, not literally, they don't need to have like round windows <laughs> and, uh, and a nose-shaped uh, opening in the middle. Well, you I mean like there, there's something following the same kind of proportions of distance between these different parts of the building that somehow resemble a face. Yeah, a, a researcher uh. like uh, Anne Sussman has done a research, a research into that and have found uh, tracking people's eyes, very modern technology, they track these extremely fast movements that the eyes make. And, and she's found that the facades that can be read with these elements compared to, let's say, a flat facade with very little detailing, like a glass facade or something, mm. these facades that somehow remind you of a face, they, they're just so much more reassuring. They just make people feel more comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, so, of course, like the modernist solution to this problem is that you create buildings out in nature with enormous glass walls, which can be very beautiful. Uh, and then some would argue you don't need uh, figurative ornament or detailing inside as much if you can watch nature all the time. But then... Most people can't live like that, especially in the century. We're trying to save the plant. We're trying to, uh, to build using less land. We're trying to minimize transports, building cities in a way that uh, accommodates uh, walking instead of driving everywhere. Then everyone can't live in like a, a square mile of nature yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> because we're bring, building densely. So like how in do you bring these... nature into the building then? Exactly, yeah. 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 Exactly, that's what you have to do. You have to create buildings that have some of the same qualities as nature And that's does. the purpose of ornamentation, for example, or... I would argue that. Yeah. That all, and, and even hierarchy. Uh, as a social democrat, perhaps I shouldn't love hierarchy. <laughs> some people would say that... Uh, well, I saw that, that uh, panel debate that you were on, and it was quite funny what you said about the, the uh, uh, this... It's quite famous in Norway, this uh, uh, 70s building for, for the government. No, yeah, for the, yeah, in the old government quarters. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, the, the main building there. Yeah. Um, uh, Which is quite flat and It's extremely flat. And it, it's just, it looks like an Excel sheet, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and in one way, you could argue that, okay, you can't see where the prime minister's office is. It's all very square. There's a lot of sameness. There's a lot of like equality. But I find that to be a tad too literal. You can't, you, can't, you can't just say that ideology and aesthetics is the same thing. At least it, it doesn't, the evidence well, lacks, right? So it doesn't relate to us uh, as human beings. No. But, but then in what sense, I mean, to stay in the specifics, how can a building like, I don't know, this temple, or if mm. you want to use one of those examples yeah. here in some yeah. way, how can, it, how can you say that it relates to a human being, human figures, uh, literally? No, but uh, yeah, like let's take the um, uh, the classical column for example. Mm. The, this is a variation because it's in Guatemala. They mm. uh, uh, replaced the um, the thistle ornament with uh, corn. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're trying to adapt to local culture. Uh -huh. uh, so, but this is still a very good example of um, of the uh, capital, the top of the the column, uh, more or less equating a head. Uh, oh. in the proportions, okay. then with the shaft uh, as the body and the feet uh, as the base, it's, it's not literal. It doesn't have to be literal. It has to be uh, similar. And that's enough for our uh, bodies to, uh, right. to think of this as something familiar. And of course, uh, these are mostly examples of classical architecture. I have a Gothic church here. I love this painting, by the way, uh, The Architect's Dream. Thomas Cole, yeah, yeah. I, I guess I forgot to say that. <laughs> because uh. it also shows that 
we have all these different impulses and they're all very valuable, even with like Egyptian, African architecture and background and also uh, the Doric column, for example, like in my drawing, um, is probably of Nubian origin. So that's also African. And and then you go to places like high classical architecture in India, the Taj Mahal or the Forbidden City in Beijing, uh, the Maya pyramids in North America, uh, South America. (laughs) And... um, and, uh, well, there's these impulses all over the world to create architecture was, that embody these same, same qualities. And that's why I wanted to, to I, I'm so happy you mentioned that, because I really wanted to, uh, you know, get that out there, that this is not something that is only Western or belongs to one political side or whatever. It is a question of that architecture has to, to somehow um, emulate or, or, or mirror us. Mm. In the literal sense, I believe I mean, so. So, and mm. so you, when you're talking about, for example, also classical Japanese uh, architecture, absolutely, are you saying that that they're the same emulation of nat- natural natural forms and of the human body occurs in those ar- traditions as well? Yes, Japanese architecture is an interesting example because it's inspired a lot of modernist architecture. It's quite yeah. simple, a lot of it, and then of course, what the Japanese do in their traditional buildings that aren't that uh, th- those elements that aren't copied toward uh, when you make something similar in Europe is that they have these like huge bulging roofs right either they they cover it with rice straw or they cover it with clay tiles that have these wonderful slopes uh, these curves um but Japanese architecture absolutely has these things and it's a lot about the proportions again Japanese Japanese architecture traditional architecture even has has these very fixed proportions based on tatami mats and the tatami mats again are very much similar to to uh, the human body in proportion mm. so you'll find a lot of these same uh, these same qualities and of course, in the building materials, Japanese have traditionally built a lot from wood, a lot from earth, actually, earth plaster. And then, of course, also uh, lime plaster and, and uh, straw and, and these things that are recognizable to us and that stimulate us. Um, I think this is where I should slip in another name. There's a lot of references. Yeah, Perhaps we should write a Just go later. wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Palasma, a Finnish architect, wrote a book that's called The Eyes of the Skin, where it talks about how... Uh, modern architecture mostly stimulates the eye. It's not, it's not nice to touch usually because we're using all these very, uh, th- these materials that are very um, smooth mm. um, and uh, even slippery and, and they, they don't stimulate us. And, and a lot of artificial materials, uh, only 100 years ago, we'd use approximately 20 materials. Now we use more than 200 just to build a normal building. Um, so, so that's another factor in, in, let's say, traditional Japanese architecture that you can also uh, get a lot of biophilia out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but uh, do you also there find? Yeah, I don't know if you is Vitruvius someone to to talk about here. This idea uh, of well, I guess you already mentioned it's uh, basically this idea that the building reflects the exact proportion somehow of the human. Uh, body. Mm-hmm. Do you find that also then specifically in Japanese architecture that it specifically relates to the human being and not only general uh, forms in nature? Yes, I would say so. Yeah. I think you find it in all human yeah. architecture. Right. Yes. <laughs> and especially traditional architecture from all over the world. Uh, modernist architecture 
has a lot to do with abstraction. It's very intellectual, right? And it has a lot to do with these other feelings that aren't just reassuring. And of course, other feelings other than being reassured are valuable. That's, that's very true. But, you know, there, there are architects who say that we don't deserve beautiful buildings today. The world is too complicated. It's not nice enough. We, don't, we, we can't build beautiful buildings because we don't live in a beautiful world. And my reply to that would be that I think the world is hard enough as it is. We don't need to make <laughs> it harder on people by, by making yeah. buildings that are wearing us down. Mm. We, can, we can make nice buildings and then people can be challenged in other ways. I think there's more than enough ways to be challenged. There's another thing though, and I don't know if that relates specifically to human proportions or proportion of nature. For example, mm. in this uh, building here, mm. this idea about, now correct me if I'm wrong, it's like a general quote-unquote classical principle to have a solid sort of more heavy or larger forms in the bottom. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, for example, windows not necessarily in a, in a strict manner, but sort of get, gradually get smaller. Yeah, that's very, that's very common. What, what's the point of that? How does that relate to us? Well, I, again, I think it's, it's similar to the tree. It's with its uh, yeah. heavier bottom, the straight middle, and the finely detailed top. Mm -hmm. um, you can see it here, right? So, so the uh, ground floor, this is Ben Pentreath in uh, Truro in England, and it's called the Royal Crescent. And one of the reasons why I suggest we should include this picture is because it shows that classical architecture doesn't have to be this thing for the upper class. This is just like mm. normal housing for normal people. Some of them are complete townhouses, but quite a lot of them are, are apartments. Um, uh, anyway, so it shows that whole thing of like the heaviness in the bottom. You see there's a round arch there. The, the round arch, of course, like carrying a lot of load. Mm -hmm. um, then there's a straight part in the middle and then an attic in the top. And these, the top floor as well of windows, you see they're one pane shorter than the other ones. Exactly. So you have that hierarchy. And going back to, I think I should finish that point of, of social democracy in architecture. Yeah. I believe that um, the architecture that's uh, good for the people, like what we want in, in social democracy or socialism, is the architecture that um, is kind, it's friendly, it's inviting, it's, uh, it speaks the language of biophilia. And that's more important than just taking an ideological position, transferring it to a diagram and then making a facade based well, on that. Yeah, that, that's a strange thing when you start putting ideology first. Because, um, yes. you know, it's like, like um, um, uh, Trump had this executive order on mm. federal building. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and um, now that they're, uh, they're hoping that this will continue, uh, there's an interview in Civilization magazine mm. coming soon with a man who, who was mostly responsible for, for writing it. Mm. And he says that, I hope that we can agree that this is not a partisan thing. Mm. It's about what human beings like. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, that was very controversial, I, even among classicists mm. in America, mm. because... Mm. Uh, no, like politics aside, the, the yeah. argument, it's the same thing that you're saying. Yes, it yeah. is. Yeah. It is. And, and I, I should mention that also one of the reasons why I like this picture is because it speaks a lot about uh, pluralism, plurality, mm. diversity, which yeah. is one of the main points also of 
queen as an architect is that you can include all these different impulses and you can appreciate that that there are different people who like different things and they, it can still all speak to us on a very fundamental level um but so so yeah i uh th th that presidential order i'm a bit like uh hesitant uh, towards it but but i think that it's no worse than the, the last one that it replaced, which of course said that everything has to be modernist. Yeah. I'd like to find like a middle road where we can like different kinds of architecture. We can build all kinds of architecture. Yeah, well, I, but that's a strange thing though, that then suddenly there is one person that comes in with an alternative, one alternative, one little sort of uh, uh, opening for classical architecture, mm. and that is seen as uh, intolerant or whatever, and then the whole 99.9% of the rest is is only, if you want to call it modernist or whatever. Mm. But uh, but it's like, I'm not so concerned with who presents it. It is the idea that this is something human beings like, mm. and that is, uh, I think that when, when you can get there, mm. if we can agree on that, then it's not an ideological idea because this whole thing about that you cannot make it today. Mm. That's pure ideology. I, I, I mean, I, it is physically impossible for me to lift this building that we're sitting in, but it is physically possible for you to draw a drawing of such a building and have it built. Um, so yes. if we choose not to do it, then we choose not to do it. I agree. Yeah. Mm. So then we're saying, okay, well, we know it's physically possible. <laughs> the, the artisans are, are, are there. Mm. They can do it. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, so it's a choice to do it or choice to not, not do it. I have to pick up this then because mm. it says architecture, choice or fate. I think it's a very good title. Right. And this is uh, Leon Kier. Leon Kier, yeah. yeah. So this book was quite old. It was, it was made before he built a lot of projects. He, he, there's more stuff of him built now. Mm. This too is done. He's not the architect behind this building, but he is the architect behind the master plan, mm. which was also done in collaboration with some local architects in, in Guatemala. Um, then an American architect, I can't quite remember his name, but he also designed that building. But that was also, again, somehow based on Leon Creer's plans. Mm. Um, but yeah, so, so Creer is very concerned with that, that we don't view architecture as something that's thrust upon us, but that it's a field where we can actually create something. Back to the architect's dream, right? Look mm. at him resting on top of that column. He's having the time of his life and he's looking out on all these opportunities, right? And mm. yeah. that's the way I interrupt it. He's saying all these things are possible. Exactly. And that, that comes back to, I mean, I can understand what, uh, maybe one of the easiest things to understand when it comes to how, well, should we say classical architecture, use that term, how it relates to us is mm. through is the or ornaments. Mm. You know, there's natural forms somehow. That's quite you know, mm. apparent. Mm. But uh, this example here doesn't mm. really have ornaments in that sense, but it mm. relates to the, the general proportions. Yeah. So it can be sort of quite, well, sober or yeah. whatever you want to say, but still be extremely appealing. I, so it's not absolutely. that that classical architecture is one thing. No, not at all. And then there is like a bit of history. If you look really closely on this project, every door has this like wonderful cast iron element with a little, uh, with a little light on top of every entrance. Mm -hmm. And that has like a little bit of figurative ornament. So it doesn't have to be a lot. And as you said, like the proportions are the main thing and perhaps also that 
you see, like it, this, it, it's a crescent, right? It's, mm. it's, it's mm. sort of embracing you. It's, uh, it's this exactly. welcoming concavity. Oh, <laughs> and and then you have that, that tiny bit of detailing, and then you have all all you need to have to have a building that speaks to you, not just intellectually but also emotionally and and perhaps biologically. This is a perfect segue. Thank you, ah, sir. You're welcome. <laughs> that was very well done. We'll, we'll have to pay you, I think. <laughs> oh my God. So you, have, you must have been thinking what, what I was holding you. <laughs> this is a book on Quinlan Terry, mm. an amazing architect. And uh, it struck me because we were talking about uh, architecture, uh, looking through these books yesterday. And this thing about uh, how sensual mm. architecture can be mm -hmm. and i was just thinking about it because we were looking at we were looking at uh, another architect before and that's also an uh, interesting issue who sort of has more flat facades mm -hmm. in some way you, you could say is, takes more the sort of contemporary demands into consideration with this is much more baroque much more sensual in that term and okay. and then when we looked at uh Quinlan terry then afterwards mm. I was just baffled by this one mm. because all of this ins and out quite wonderful is almost like you know well we don't have to describe it too much in detail but uh, you know the ins and outs of a human body oh absolutely and and th that a building can be sensual it's wow yeah. <laughs> it's an amazing thing but absolutely. okay uh, why is this good so um it's good on several levels i'll um no let's start with the body let's start mm. with the body mm. so um I, I feel I feel somehow related to this. Uh, I feel I feel like this building is saying something that's similar to myself. You see how it bulges in the middle of the pediment, mm -hmm. the, the gable on top, mm -hmm. and then concavity. So it's it's like this, right? Mm -hmm. Concave, convex, concave. It's, it's sort of embracing you, and those those soft lines are speaking a very natural language, which of course also is is um, is reflected in the capitals, the um, Corinthian capital has a lot of these swirls and, and bulges and stuff. And then he takes those, um, those elements and he transfers them to like, a larger scale. But at a simpler level, it's, it's a wonderful, per uh, it's a wonderful uh, example of, a perfect example really, of, of um, organized complexity. Organized complexity. That is grand. Yes, yes. we love that. Well, I, I love that idea. Say, yeah. No, but it, it's taken an, an Italian uh, mountain village, right? Mm. Every house is different. Not two houses are identical. But they all fit together because they're all made from the same local sandstone, let's say. And this building does the same thing. So even though there's quite a lot of variation, the side wings are very simple, very flat, very geometric. And then the middle is super bulgy and, uh, and sensual and has a lot of like historical references. And it's, it's very heavy in a way. It still fits very well together because it's all made from one material. So it's, it's a wonderful exercise in, in, in organized complexity in something that's varied um, but still held together. And in this case, it's held together very much by the use of material. And the, a few other elements like the windows are also repeated. So, so there are things I love about it as well. Then the final thing that I really like about it, and then that also goes back to the idea of queerness in architecture, um, which is that history is allowed in. All the references, all the positive things you think about when you see 
a pediment that's flowing and having fun. It's, it reminds you of theatricality, of going to the theatre, of... Um, it reminds you of uh, the book that you read first year of uh, art history that you had, where you learned about false perspectives. Uh, so it includes all those things that you can somehow recognize. It's kind of references, referencing uh, Boromini here. Yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, he, he takes the Corinthian-ness of it, right? And he, he emphasizes it. So it's... It, it, the house is just called Corinthian Villa, and and uh, I find it very convincing as a as an exercise in in um, in expressing uh, these uh, this love of history that that Quentin Terry shows in so many of his projects. Mm -hmm. And I think that architecture today can also uh, also accommodate, right? Yeah. Uh, that, then there's um, then there's the idea of how things can how a building can make you feel more elevated. Mm. Uh, there, that's a, a strange thing I thought that um, when I had Vega uh, uh, Martinson on uh, speaking of reference we went into architecture a bit mm. uh, referencing Ayn Rand mm. and uh, I think that was an example of, because I, I disagree with him and that was an example of sort of um, ideas first mm. where coming into cathedral uh, according to him, him made you feel small mm. But you know the office building makes you feel grand because you're you're bigger according to the height of the room, and theoretically I, yes. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but but that was so strange to mm. me because I mean what I feel is that you come in and it opens up and it's grand and you're part of this and you're growing along Floating. with it. I mean that that's why you 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 love to see uh, uh, Braveheart where Mel Gibson is fighting against these people. And says, yes, I'm going <laughs> to go out and. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I'm ready to fight. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that part of it, that's more of the sort of metaphysical uh, or, or ethical or whatever uh, mm. level where the, these buildings, because they reference us and uh, sort of copy us somehow, mm. copy, copies nature, but also pulls us up. Mm. Mm. But that you have that, that uh, mental health issue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it, it is a very interesting, uh, interesting example. I've, of course, read the book, uh, The Fountainhead. Every yeah, architect mm. has, more or less. And, mm. and I don't find Ayn Rand's ideology very fascinating. But I like the book. And, yeah. and, what, and it has some good points. Of course it does. Um, but, but I think, um, I think like, like Burke wrote an article that more or less gave like a Freudian explanation, like talking about her past, ex mm. escaping from a communist regime. Uh, uh, and where in, in this time, uh, Stalinist classicism was like, uh, was, was the uh, ultimate architecture mm -hmm. at that point that book was being written. Of course, she has to somehow distance herself from that. Um, but it doesn't make sense in a way because her ideology talks so much about uh, the individual and and sort of following your impulses and uh, appreciating what is uh, what is special about you. Yeah, and I think think that is <laughs> ma major. Yeah, and, and then the architecture he argues for is so bland and it's so erasing of the individual. Yeah, I think that's uh, because I think then you're talking about that it's a, a symbol for the capitalist society. That the ideological yeah, I speaking, that that is that's uh, sort of the, the quality of it for her. But and I disagree with that. I don't understand that point. Um, yeah, but but I'm I'm thinking you know this is going back to 
Campbell again, how mm. uh, you, you need to see yourself externalized. And that is, you can say, well, that is, those are just emotions. Mm. But that's an essential part of being a human being. So <laughs> you, you have to, and you know, the, the whole idea of, uh, uh, speaking of timelessness, uh, uh, and this idea that what you're saying now, uh, what I'm hearing here is that, mm. Because it relates to nature, because it relates to the human body, that's why it's good. Not because it's classical or 17th century or whatever. That that you, we've sort of been tricked. I know maybe that concept classical tricks us into believing that that's the quality, not the na reference to nature. Because Campbell hmm. talks about it all the time that you you um, if you do not see your life somehow externalized mm. in worst case scenario you 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 can cut off from society mm. you, you can be schizophrenic for example mm. he talks about it in one of his lectures mm. camel's a wonderful example yeah. because he also of course references myths from all over the world from all yeah. kinds of different times yeah. mm. and even dreams and um and in that he he, he gives a perfect example of how these things are i think they're universal to use that word, like, and the universal is a controversial, uh, controversial term these days. You sure you want us to publish this now? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do have. You have uh, to think about your future. Yeah. yeah well, I do have my uh, environmentalist queer activist uh, membership. Card, you have this remember? shield. Yeah. <laughs> it's like some Harry Potter shield in front you of me. Okay. <laughs> so, so. Yeah. So, and and plus these things that we're talking about, I don't find them to be ideological. I mm. find that yeah. the science behind it is incontrovertible. Mm. Uh, you 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 have to believe if you believe in science. Mm. If if you believe, let's say, in climate change, you mm. can't you can't not believe in these things because it's it's quite obvious. And there's there's a lot of research coming out every year showing these same tendencies. And of course, they're not very popular at architecture schools these days, environmental psychology and architecture psychology, oh. because the conclusions are very traditional, right? Oh, right, so, yeah, yeah, so yeah, it was, yeah, it was super. It was super popular, like, around the last turn of the century, like, around uh, the uh, 2000. It was super popular in architecture schools. But then they discovered that all the conclusions were quite traditional. <laughs> so now, they're, now it's not very popular anymore. And uh, they'll probably be, like, a back and forth going, going forward. But, but um, I, I think that you can find a lot of these Things. And I, I think you can find them all over the world. And um, and even though architecture should also stimulate us intellectually, I think that uh, classicism, for example, uh, classicism is my example. I grew up in, in Norway, in, in Europe, and I with a love of, of, of history. Then classicism makes a lot of sense because it's this force in, in Western societies, right? It's come back again and mm. again, and it's disappeared and come back and disappeared and come back again and again. Um, so that makes a lot of sense for me to pursue. Uh, but I also love architecture from other civilizations all over the world. And I think they have so much to offer us, even directly inspired. I, I remember someone suggested that, uh, for example, immigrant groups in, uh, in Norway should be able to build houses in the style of their home country. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine anything more wonderful that's than, let's say, that also had like a Persian neighborhood with all kinds of like Persian houses. That would be like so wonderful. Or like a Polish village or like these little thatched thingies with gables. Well, that was funny. I, I was in uh, <laughs> Syria yeah. in uh, uh, 2013 was it mm. um, uh, uh, now 2003 mm. um, and we I forget the village but that was um, uh, you know buildings for for like uh, apartment buildings mm. and they were 
you know, quite simple, but obviously very classical. Mm. You know, quote unquote Western. You would mm. say if you saw it in another country, mm. but it was in Syria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then, yeah. of course Syria also has the connection to classicism via Palmyra well, yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. and that mm. whole history of, of being like on the outer edges of the Roman Empire. Mm. Um, and I love those mixes. This is one of the reasons why I wanted to include the Guatemalan project as well. Mm. It's called Paseo Cayala, mm. and and. You don't have to be very imaginative to to see an Aztec pyramid in these stairs, right? I had my suspicions. Yeah, and yeah. I, th I think it's a wonderful reference. And I even classical architecture. Some view classical architecture as this project of purity, which I really don't. I don't. I don't yeah. think it's a, an exercise in purity at all. I think it's really an exercise in um, in diversity and in inclusion. Uh, it it in the very word uh, uh, Ionic column, for example, mm. the Ionics, they were a tribe living in, in the outer parts of ancient Greece. And they, uh, it was their customs that were integrated into this architecture and then made into presumably something eternal. Uh, but it's m mostly eternal, I think, because it adheres to these same rules that traditional architecture does all over the world. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, again, going back to Tbilisi, has of course it's on the Silk Road. It's almost midway, I think, between like the the East and 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 Venice. So you have these these impulses where all the houses look like Italian townhouses, except there you have Arabian balconies, <laughs> and then on top of some of the Arabian balconies, you have like these Swiss glass uh, balconies as well. Okay, so there's like <laughs> these glazed glazed details, and and you have these. Ca uh, camel hotels, right? So the the first the ground floor of the building will be like five meters tall, but it has to because it has to accommodate the camels. Oh, okay. and then you have hotel rooms for the people who, who are riding the caravans on top of that. And the whole language of it is quite European, but yeah. it's a can. But it's a camel hotel. It's a, cla a classical camel hotel. How wonderful is that? How how wonderful is that meeting between these different impulses? And it. I find it so interesting that it can all be accommodated, right? Mm. It still makes sense. You're a man of perfect segues. <laughs> Why don't you name drop a couple of, of uh, examples from, from uh, all over the world? Okay. Uh, um, and you are also, of course, very well acquainted with uh, New Traditional Architecture, that group on, on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, and what strikes me is that there's dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of, good, of perfect... Uh, and very optimistic examples about you know newly made classical buildings uh, going on. I think mm. I, I mean like from Germany or suddenly there's some church from Romania or whatever. It's it's all over the all over the world, but we don't really get to hear about it. I know, and it I think uh, spreading the word that these things are possible is is very important because yeah. because it can convince new gen generations that they don't have to. Uh, limit themselves that they can be inclusive they can include their local culture they can mm. include their love of history in the way they practice architecture yeah so of course there's a number of uh, beautiful classical buildings being built all over the world uh, let's start with uh, that wonderful villa in palestine uh, that is almost an exact copy uh, of a, 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 an Italian Renaissance villa, a Palladio villa. Really? And it looks so good. I think it's the richest man in Palestine who lives there. And it's built so solidly and so convincingly. And it, it shows ho so much civic pride in a way. Uh. Of course, Palestine is a very controversial and difficult area to live in. Uh, people's lives there are difficult. But I think everyone who sees that building uh, sees uh, the success of one of their own. 
and the marriage between uh, European impulses and their own uh, their own culture. But that's fascinating then that that, that, that a building can can give a society optimism. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I think I think it's it's very fascinating, mm. and and then you can find wonderful classical buildings like private houses being built in in Britain and the United States. Uh, you have uh, Kayala in uh, in in Guatemala, as I mentioned, uh, in the very east as well. I know the uh, a very good uh, villa in Hong Kong built up in the hills there. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Also done in a very like correct but but nice classicism. It's, it's it has this warmth to it. But but the even more interesting examples I would say are the examples that. Uh, can be viewed as an example of fighting against entropy, right? We, the sameness, the fight against sameness. That's one of the most wonderful things that my teachers emphasized when I lived in, in, in uh, Denmark. They said, don't design a building that could go anywhere. Design a building for this place, for this mm-hmm. time, for this, this situation, uh, for these people. Um, be specific. Don't be general, because that's one of the ways you can you can sort of resist the sameness that's happening all over the world. Things are becoming more and more similar, and I think architects can have an instrumental role in that. Uh, so you have uh, buildings in Denmark, for example, in Obenro and Sundborg uh, that. They look so Danish. <laughs> they, they have all these these elements that make you recognize them as, as being Danish. Mm. Or um, like I I lived a semester in Kenya, um, in really? East, East Africa, yeah. Mm. And there's a whole renaissance of Swahili architecture going on there now. Swahili architecture is a lot about the courtyard. So 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 you, the courtyard is, is is sort of the 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 heart of the house. But then you have these different elements, like sort of stacked around. It's quite picturesque um, and very airy. So you have this combination of these very airy things on top, almost like tents, uh, and then heavy masonry. Um, and that that whole architecture, that whole language, is having such a revival right now. Um, and you find these things so, so many places in the world that people are finding pride in their own local traditions and in their own local. Um, uh, characteristics, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, and of course it helps using local materials. Uh, that's also a wonderful trend. That's also happening in modernist architecture, by the way, and and it's a it's a great starting point. But I think that um, emphasizing place instead of time, let's say, when you're designing, uh, is uh, okay. an interesting yeah. key. Uh. So you shouldn't be very conscious of this building has to look like it was designed in 2021. You should think this building should look like it was designed in Stavarn outside of Larik in Norway. Uh, well, that, that was so, uh, I remember learning that when I went to, um, together with a f- uh, friend of mine, uh, we went to uh, Landshut uh, outside of Munich. Mm. The, you know, it was the capital of, of uh, um, yeah, in that area. Uh, and we went to the castle there. And there's a uh, was a chapel, medieval chapel in in the castle, and then she points out to me, you know, they have this uh, medieval sculpture standing there, and she, yeah, you know, look at that one. Do you see anything spe- special about it? And I was looking at it and looking at the others, and no, well, that was commissioned by Ludwig II, hmm. the the Kitsch king. <laughs> And uh, we also went to see the, 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 his, his castle, these three castle, uh, castles there, mm. or villas castles. Mm. Um, and 
it just struck me afterwards that this is all about the will to do it. Mm. But of course, you have to have the intelligence and the and the well in our time the courage you could say mm. to actually uh, um, you know say that this this should be built. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, and and hopefully um, this love of diversity that I think is characteristic of a number of uh, a number of tendencies in society today. I hope that that tendency can be transferred to architecture as well and that it could open up for the classical, for the traditional, for the local and for the imaginative. Mm. I, I put on top of my on top of my drawing here. That's that that that's a a um that's an apple, like an, a Georgian apple. Mm. There's no reason why you need a Georgian apple on top of your building. It's just like a lovely thing that people, when they see it, they mm. will recognize it. Mm. Mm. A pomegranate, that's what it's uh, called yeah, yeah, yeah. in English. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, there's a pomegranate, and there's no yeah. reason why there has to be a pomegranate there. But it doesn't insult anyone. On the other hand, it's, it's quite lovely. And I think people who, who see it will appreciate it. And people who don't get the reference will still see there's like a nice golden orb on top of that building. Yeah, yeah. And they won't mind. And for some reason, that so I believe in that inclusivity. Yeah, mm. yeah. But then there's also I was thinking one example that that I found so intriguing, and I I really, that sort of uh, taught me a fundamental thing. Uh, you know that what's the name of that cathedral that they rebuilt and it was completely destroyed in the revolution in 1910s or like late 1910s. What country are we in now? In, in Moscow. In in Russia, uh, yeah, yeah. The holy uh, for the the, the Hol- cathedral for the it's, soldiers or whatever. It's like the, the main cathedral yeah, in yeah, Moscow. Yeah. It used to be yeah, like yeah. It's, I, so they rebuilt. Mm. I presume that from the actual uh, drawings of it because mm. it wasn't a uh, mm. new building or they, they just redid it from the ground up. Mm. Mm. And what struck me is this idea that of course this is a sort of political term mm. synergy effect that they talk about when they want to say that something is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, because what you get there, well, you don't only get the architect, obviously it has to be built, so you get all the builders, or the, the guys who are building it. But then you get uh, people who need to guild things, mm. you, to do mosaics, to paint icons, mm. and you know, sculpture. Work, uh, woodwork, yeah. uh, yes. carving. Yeah. All these people who have, have this expertise. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I, I, that's when I really thought this is a really optimistic thing because suddenly a, a young classical painter is, uh, is given the commission to paint an altarpiece. Mm. You know, that can happen. Yeah. And I think it's, it's so important to emphasize uh, that, that this is not, oh yeah, this is architecture. It has nothing to do with other other fields is it incorporates all those fields and i think it can really you know uh, create this renaissance that people are talking about all the time mm. for a lot of other crafts as well absolutely and it's good it's good it's good economy like it's yeah. very stimulating and it's not just like one bag of money going into the uh, in the, to the lap of like this one rich guy no it's like spread out of so many different <laughs> yes. people well they have to get paid <laughs> yeah and then again maybe people follow them on instagram and then some uh, someone is inspired to use them the next time they're like redoing their house instead of instead of doing it the cheapest way possible they might consider okay Perhaps I should triple the cost of this one detail in this room, but it's being done by someone who has an expertise, yes. who, who uses their hands, and then and then it would have a completely different quality to to something that's d- just done mechanically. Mm. 
so so that's a nice ambition for architecture as well. I think is to uh, stimulate those craftspeople, those artisans. Mm. Uh, um, that's a, that's a wonderful possibility for architecture, isn't it? Yeah. To to uh, as so, some people called architecture the the mother arts, um, the mother art because because a lot of other art forms of art started in relation to architecture. Uh, the paintings were used to decorate the walls in the building. Sculptures were used to mark an entrance or a skyline. Um, and uh, and I think yeah. we can still sometimes take that responsibility. Yeah, I've, this is uh, well. This is back to Louis II. I, I'm so infatuated with him. Um, it's very fascinating. Very yeah. queer, isn't it? Yes, I guess he was. I think he was like literally gay yeah, as well. I, I do think he was, <laughs> but, but that's not talked much about. Really, no. <laughs> no, point is that that in the um, uh, Neuschwanstein mm. there was this bed, and it was, I think. Do I remember correctly? It was a group of carpenters that spent, I don't know, two or four years yeah, on something it, like that yeah. with spears and all kinds of things going on. Yeah, and I th- that is just wonderful. Like, I mean, if people can see see that aspect of it, that it, this, this is not just architecture; it's all those those crafts that are being mm. pulled, up, you know, get pulled up along with it yeah yeah mm. absolutely i there's this one decorative painter i guess like uh ping every time she posts something on, on instagram and it's just it's just such a wonderful thing to sometimes when i wake up in the morning and i feel dreary and <laughs> and i see her like you know designing a marbled wall somewhere in rural sweden it just it makes me so happy yeah. uh, to just see that sort of stuff going on yeah. and seeing that there are so many competent people out there right um, I, th- I think that's so so important and that's why uh, uh, i was so happy to meet you that uh, and to hear all those things because it's the, you know we have to get the message out there there's so much positive things going on but uh, there's one thing Shifting a little bit, mm. uh, uh, when it comes to sort of the, the, the practicalities around it, mm. uh, this idea of um, classical buildings being expensive, uh, or like, like, what's your thoughts on that? Like, can you can that be less expensive to build? I've heard someone say that that you actually save money on it, or like, I mean, as an argument for the economy of this. The, there, there is an issue there, definitely, because. Right now, architecture, like everything else in our society, is mostly being made to be thrown away in 20 years or less. Mm. There's, there's this, there's this uh, consumerist attitude towards mm. everything, right? Mm. You, you buy a new watch. Oh, it breaks. You just throw it away. Buy, buy a new one. You buy some, some trousers. They break. You buy new ones. You uh, build a house. It looks wonderful. All your friends come around and say, oh, this is such a wonderful house. Then it gets it gets old uh, the the paint starts to peel then you either like completely renovate it and replace half the materials in the house or even like said someone knocks it down and builds a new house so so there's of course a huge issue there and i think i think we're in a territory we're talking about like economic models and, and those sort of problems uh where one obvious answer would be if someone is going to own a building and just not, not just sell it at once. They will be more conscious of how how does it age? Does it age with dignity? Does it mm-hmm. age in a way that's practical? And then, if you have those th- those ideas in, in in mind when you build, 
you'll choose solutions that are not just single-use architecture. Um, so that's one that's one reply, right? So if someone if someone builds something something that's built to last, I think, and I think consumers have to demand it as well. They have to ask, is this I, this thing you're, you, I'm going to buy? Is it going to hold up? Um, and the other side of it, of course, is that modern technology offers amazing improvements and and alternatives. I love something that's made by hand, but I completely accept that some things aren't. Uh, this glass, love it, but it's. It's it's not something that's someone made in like the 18th century, like using spending their whole week making this one glass. Um, there's a there's a project in Oslo where they just remo- uh, replaced some stone balusters, like the things holding up a handrail, mm. um, and some of them were broken. I had to replace them, and uh, I, I just noticed last time I passed by that they had been replaced by machine cut balusters and they actually looked kind of cool they well first of all they look completely uh, identical to the other ones because they are made of the same kind of stone and then if you look really closely you can see like these rings where where, where the machine mm. has carved out the stone and I think if the alternative had been to just order something that looked a bit similar from China mm. <laughs> or India uh, and they have wonderful stone but it's it's something about there's something about um, emphasizing and appreciating what's local. So they use the same kind of stone, but then it's machine carved, and I think that's a perfectly fine uh, compromise. Mm. So, so you can so use you, a lot of modern technologies e- as well. Yeah, you can easily uh, fall into sort of a purist trap where everything should be, you know, strictly classical, and there should be no compromise at all, and yeah. then you end up not having anything built, right? Yeah. But can you say that a uh, Build that it's worth it economically to build classical, or is, does that demand that you have to think uh, it, you you know s- spread those that money out on a much longer scale uh, time scale? Yeah, you know, it can be economical, and and uh, you do see all over the world that classical buildings sell very well. Like mm. they're very popular. Uh, a lot of people want to live in those those new classical. Right. So places. it's not really an argument. No, I wouldn't say so. No. no. Then, of course, in in Oslo these days, you can build anything and it will get sold. Like, there's no limit to what people will buy. But that's, again, an, an issue that has to do with the, with the market and uh, whether it should be regulated differently or more or less. Or I don't have the, the answers there. That's, that's a huge question. But... But architecture, uh, classical architecture, well-designed classical architecture, you can't just like put uh, put some like lines on the window and say this is classical or like take a picture of a pediment to show to your builder. You have to have people who are competent in designing these things. Um, but if you have that and it's, it's well done, that's definitely added value. Mm. I would mm. say so. And, <clears throat> and, and one more thing I'll mention there is that... Um, as I said, one of the points of queerness in architecture is that you have the right to be who you want to be, who you feel like you are. It's a non-essentialist view, right? So it, cladding or uh, clothing, same kind of thing. You use the word cladding, right, for things mm. that you cover for sales with. Um, and some would view that as inauthentic. But I would say that this this demand for the authentic, it's quite oppressive because there's so much it doesn't allow for. It doesn't allow for, for, uh, for buildings that, uh, that are friendly, that incorporate um, 
incorporate that at least that sort of friendliness that references history that references these old hierarchies that look like something that was built before to be to be very literal um and and i think that demand for authenticity is is very um it's very out of tune with with the love of diversity that exists in most of that of society. Well, I mean, you, ha- you have that idea from uh, Loos, out of Loos. Yeah. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, ornament als verbrechen. Ornament is uh, is a crime. Yeah, um, which some would say is like super racist because he based that on on anthropological studies of of tribes oh. from all over the world, right? And oh, yeah, so it's yeah. he's more or less saying we shouldn't be like these primitive vulgar people in. Patagonia or whatever. Oh, I see. <laughs> or, or the lower classes with their tattoos. Like, mm-hmm. oh, who wants to be like the lower classes? That's more or less well, what he's saying. That's an aspect it's too, racist yeah. and classes. So congratulations <laughs> to Albert Lewis on like <laughs> ticking both of those boxes. I think you just <laughs> killed him. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, yeah. So, so, so there's these problems within that demand for authenticity uh, that they, they leave so little room for movement for people and so little mm. room for inclusivity. So, so in that way, I don't mind either a building uh, that's, let's say, in, in early nineteenth-century Norway, you had so many pe- so many buildings that looked like they were made out of stone, but they were really made of wood. Mm. And they were painted in like these sand-colored stones, for example, sand-colored uh, sandstone colors. Um, and no one's saying these days that we should tear those buildings down. Like uh, like the building where our constitution was written. That's one of the the buildings that it's sort of trying to look like a masonry building. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah. That's a fascinating thing. This. I mean, speaking of this idea mm. of truth, Carl mm. um, uh, Korsnes, whom mm. you know as, as well, uh, had a, fa- a funny story where he was talking with a. Uh, well, they were talking about architecture and sitting in Rome. And of course, surrounded by classical architecture, mm. and they were talking about how it. You know, this other person was saying that you know it's, I guess, used the term inauthentic mm. uh, if you build it build it today. Dishonest, because, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's like you know mm. you don't need the columns because you the, you don't need the column to to carry the the, the um, uh, whatever it mm. supposedly carries, right? And and then Carl uh, Kostens was saying, you know, what what are what those um, uh, the dentals? Mm. You know, up on the roof of the, mm. of the buildings, these little boxes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, uh, suddenly pointed out that you know those dentals on the authentic classical buildings. Mm. You know, the point, the reason why they're there is that there were beams that would carry the roof. Yeah. But these dentals don't carry anything. Yeah. It's just ornament. So the classical, the authentic classical buildings are then on. Not authentic. No, <laughs> you, know, it's like you, you, you have to purify the whole yeah. history of, no, of nothing passes the test. <laughs> like even the like this this Mies van der Rohe building, this like super modernist skyscraper in New York, mm. where he, it's all about honesty, right? So he he let like the steel, the steel structure, the steel columns that hold this building up. Uh, he wants to show them, but the problem is they were being destroyed by the weather. So he had. To glue new ones on the outside no! of the building, <laughs> so that's like it's it's inauthentic, but it's pretending to be more authentic than something that's considered to be inauthentic. It's like this super weird game. Oh my god, this is a rabbit hole. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, so, so again, like you said, nothing passes a test, and I think I think we should appreciate that and and accept that 
there's more to architecture than being essentialist and being <laughs> being hung up on on authenticity because true because yeah. it offers so many more opportunities when you when you try to do something that's um, that's inclusive yeah perfect Christian Hafanersen thank you for coming to the Cave of Palace thank you for having me and thank you for watching I'd also like to thank our top sponsors Fergus Ryan Jared Fountain, Marco Campos, Michael Masco, Stacy Evangelista, Sean Roberts, and Maurice Robbins for making this show possible. And be sure to head over to kopillus.com slash donate and support our show. I'll see you next month.